as you find Revelation 12, let me say this is, you, you, you will only end up hearing a sermon on Revelation 12 when you preach books through from beginning to end. Um, of, of my favorite, you know, popular preachers that you can, you can find, only John MacArthur has sermons on Revelation 12. I started looking at other sources. John Piper, nothing. Alistair Begg doesn't have anything. H.B. Charles, Steve Lawson, just nothing. There's just not anything there. And it's because it isn't a text that lends itself to a, a simple message. First off, in Revelation 12, before we read the text, you need to understand that we've got uh, symbolic imagery going on. There's a woman who is clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet. She's wearing 12 stars on her head like a crown. There's a uh, a newborn baby who is destined to rule the nations. There's a, a great dragon with seven heads and uh, ten horns that's determined to devour that child. There's a, a great battle in heaven, and then that battle uh, is moved to the earth. Second, the imagery, because it is not explicit, is sometimes open to interpretation. You know, who is this woman? Is this Mary? Is this Israel? Is this the, the church? Who's the dragon? Can we, can we know for sure? And third, we have to ask ourselves, well, why is this story here? I mean, didn't Revelation 11 just end with the, the seventh trumpet, the return of the Lord Jesus to reign? Why does John's narrative about the future get interrupted by this vision? Well, these are all questions that we have to grapple with. Not everyone's going to agree on each point, but I do think that as we look at the chapter, there's a consensus that we can come to which puts all of this in perspective. Yes, have you, have you ever watched a, a, a movie that at the end, when it comes to sort of the, the climactic scenes of the end, the director chooses to start giving you little flashbacks of earlier in the movie to show you like it's a it's a good storytelling device to say like let's remember how it is that we got here i think that's the best way to understand revelation 12 as john's vision reaches this climactic moment to the lord jesus's return we are briefly drawn away to this retelling of let's remember what brought us here and in that retelling what we'll see in Revelation 12 is the, the fall of Satan drawing a third of the angelic host with him. There's a reminder of the promise to Eve back in Genesis 3.15 that her seed would crush Satan. We're given a flashback to the birth of Jesus, the Son of God, through spiritual eyes which see it much differently than we ever imagine it. We even see Jesus ascend victoriously into heaven and on earth. Those who keep his commands remain to live victoriously through his blood. In this Revelation 12 story, we're given this great overview of the historic struggle between good and evil, between God and Satan. That's what this chapter is. So now let's read this. Revelation 12, starting at verse 1. And there appeared a great wonder in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet, and upon her head a crown of twelve stars. 
And she, being with child, cried, travailing in birth and pained to be delivered. And there appeared another wonder in heaven, and behold, a great red dragon, having seven seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns upon his heads. And his tail drew the third part of the stars of heaven and did cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman which was ready to be delivered for to devour her child as soon as it was born. And she brought forth a man-child who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron, and her child was caught up unto God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness, where she has a place prepared of God that they should feed her there a thousand two hundred and threescore days. And there was a war in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon fought and his angels, and prevailed not, neither was their place found any more in heaven. And the great dragon was cast out, that old serpent called the devil and Satan, which deceives the whole world. He was cast out into the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. And I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, Now has come salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ. For the accuser of our brethren is cast down, which accused them before our God day and night. And they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. And they loved not their lives unto death. Therefore rejoice, ye heavens, and ye that dwell in them. Woe to the inhabitants of the earth and of the sea. For the devil is come down unto you, having great wrath, because he knows that he has but a short time. And when the dragon saw that he was cast into the earth, he persecuted the woman which brought forth the man-child. And to the woman were given two wings of a great eagle, that she might fly into the wilderness, into her place, where she is nourished for a time, and times, and half a time, from the face of the serpent." And the serpent cast out of his mouth water as a flood after the woman, that he might cause her to be carried away of the flood. And the earth helped the woman, and the earth opened her mouth and swallowed up the flood which the dragon cast out of his mouth. And the dragon was wroth with the woman, and went to make war with the remnant of her seed, which keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of of Jesus Christ. So here's the point where I usually say this text breaks down naturally into three sections. It, it doesn't. In some ways, we could try that. I mean, there are ways of, uh, of trying to manipulate the text that way. You can see in verse 1 it says there was a great wonder in heaven and literally a sign in heaven. And then in verse 3 there's another sign in heaven. So we could start breaking the text down that way or we could start breaking it down by identifying the characters, right? Who is this woman? Who is the dragon? Who is the child? Who are the archangels, right? These, but the text here is telling a story. So I think it's best that we just work our way through the story. It starts by telling a Christmas story like no other one that you have ever heard. 
I will say it's, it's probably the one part of this account in this chapter which almost everyone agrees what it means. It begins with the birth of the Lord Jesus. You might be able to debate that for the first few verses, but by the time this child is described in verse 5 as the one, the male child who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron and he is caught up to God's throne, the debate should be over. And so verses 1 and 2 describe there's, there's this great wonder, a great sign. Literally, John's using the same word there with, for wonder as he used for miracles back in his gospel. There's a great sign in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet and upon her head a crown of 12 stars. And she being with child cried, travailing in birth and pain to be delivered. How are we going to understand John's vision? Well, up to this point in Revelation, the way we've understood it is that we've seen John has given Old Testament cues, right? There's these clues that are given along the way, and I think he does the same thing here. Remember, back in the story of, of Joseph in Genesis, Joseph had a dream, and he tells his dream to his family. He says, in in this dream I saw there was the sun and the moon and these 11 other stars and they came and they knelt down before me. And of course, if you have a mom and dad and 11 brothers, the meaning of that dream is not hard to understand, right? Even, Even Joseph's father looked at him and said, you know, shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed kneel down to you? We know that Jacob's 12 sons would become the 12 tribes of Israel. And now in Revelation 12, this woman appears as a great sign in heaven and the imagery of that story in Genesis is brought right into this story. She's clothed with the sun. The moon is under her feet. There's 12 stars crowning her head. This is meant to make us think of the nation of Israel. While some would look at this, especially Roman Catholics, and say, well, this has to be the Virgin Mary that's being talked about. And it's true, Jesus is born of a virgin named Mary. This woman in Revelation 12 is not her specifically. It's more appropriate to see this woman as the nation of Israel, the nation to whom the Messiah was promised, especially later on down in this story, starting at verse 13 forward, This woman is persecuted by Satan during the tribulation period. This is hardly something that could be said of Mary. Identifying this woman as Israel also fits with the Old Testament prophet's description of the nation. Isaiah 26, verse 17. Isaiah says, As a woman with child is in pain and cries out in her birth pains, When she draws near the time of her delivery, so have we been in your sight, O Lord. In Micah 4, verse 10, Be in pain and labor to bring forth, O daughter of Zion, like a woman in birth pangs. As this woman is pregnant and goes into labor, in verse 2, the labor produces this prolonged agony. She's on the very verge of giving birth and Truly, if you know Israel's history as a nation, as they awaited the birth of their Messiah, it was a long 
an agonizing wait. She suffered through the centuries, but the, the promise of God was sure. In the fullness of time, Jesus came, born of a woman, to save his people from their sins. And yet, even when he's born in the flesh, at Bethlehem, there were malevolent forces at work planning to destroy him. And we see that starting in verse 3, there appeared another wonder in heaven. This great red dragon having seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns on his head and his tail drew a third part of the stars of heaven and had cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman which was ready to be delivered for to devour her child as soon as it was born. Right, a new character gets introduced to the story here, although we find out he's been around for a while. It is this great red dragon, seven heads and ten horns and a crown on each head. This dragon is Satan, although some would argue that this is supposed to represent the Roman Empire, and I understand why they do. The description of this dragon fits very well with the vision of Daniel Back in Daniel chapter 7, which when we go to that vision, we would identify that part of his vision with Rome. And surely Rome was in control at the birth of Jesus and Roman authorities like Herod attempted to murder him. But let's remember that Satan is the motivating force behind every wicked world power. This is Satan. Later on in the same chapter, if we have any question about that, by the time we get to verse 9, it says this great dragon was cast out, that old serpent called the devil and Satan, which deceives the whole world. So this dragon is the serpent in the garden in Genesis chapter 3. He's the devil, it says. The word there literally means the adversary. He is Satan. The word Satan means accuser. He's the great deceiver of the entire world order. And verse 4 describes the initial days of his rebellion against God. It says that he pulled down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. It's a fitting description of Satan's rebellion against Yahweh the Creator originally made with the purpose of serving and glorifying God, Satan became selfish and desired to steal God's glory by assuming God's place. Here's how Isaiah describes this in Isaiah 14, verses 12 through 15. He says, How you are fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning. You are cut down to the ground, you who weakened the nations. For you have said in your heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will also sit in the mount of the congregation on the farthest sides of the earth. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the most high. Yet you shall be brought down to hell to the lowest depths of the pit. Apparently, a full one-third of the angelic beings followed Satan's treachery and were cast out of heaven with him. And since that time, Satan has sought to thwart God's righteous plans, hating particularly those beings that were made in God's image. So if you picture this vision in Revelation 12, there's this woman in severe labor pains about to give birth. There is this great red 
a multi-headed dragon posed before, ready to consume the child the moment he's born. Put that in a nativity scene in the town square and see if anybody complains. This is the incarnation viewed from a spiritual perspective. Satan was determined and has always been determined to prevent the Messiah from entering the world. Right? He, he, he's moved in that way throughout history. He led Cain to murder his brother Abel. He influenced Pharaoh to slaughter the male infants of the Hebrews. He motivated Saul in multiple attempts to murder David. And when King Herod uh, decreed the slaughter of the innocents in, in Bethlehem, it was just the latest attempt of Satan to devour this perfect promised child. Because of the birth of Jesus, the Son of God, his birth marks the certain death for this great red dragon. Even as God had promised in Genesis 3 that the seed of the woman would come and crush Satan's head. The beginning of the human life of this child marks the certain end of the life of Satan. The desire of this dragon to snuff out this child's life, though, is thwarted. Is the story is dramatically fast-forwarded in verse 5. She brought forth a male child who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron, and her child was caught up unto God and to his throne. The desire of Satan was thwarted by the will of God and by the work of God. The will of God is seen in verse 5's phrase that this male child was the one who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron. Again, John's drawing on Old Testament imagery, this time from Psalm 2. David in Psalm 2 wrote about a future king who would rule the nations with an iron scepter. But I want you to mark that word rule there in verse 5. It is the Greek word poimeno, which means literally shepherd while his rule is authoritative it's it's a rod of iron it is unbending it's also as a shepherd literally a pastor drawing the nations as his flock that is the purpose of christ's coming to display the will of god that he should reign over all satan's desire to snuff out christ's life is also thwarted by the work of god The end of verse 5, this child is caught up unto God and to his throne. This is such a a, a quick retelling of this, this arc of redemptive history. It doesn't contain every detail. We might want to complain and say, well, why don't we see the crucifixion here? Why don't we see the the cross here? And it's not here explicitly, but we see it through references to, for example, in verse 11, the shed blood of the lamb. And here in verse 5, the ascension of Jesus proves the crucifixion and resurrection. After his resurrection, Jesus taught his disciples for 40 days and then rose up in a cloud and sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high, or as verse 5 says, he was caught up to God and his throne. As the story continues, having failed to consume the child, this red dragon turns his malicious fury on the mother. In verse 6, 
the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared of God that they should feed her a thousand two hundred and three score days. That time, 1,260 days. It's three and a half years. We've already seen that Satan will use the Antichrist to promote a peace treaty with Israel for the first half of the seven-year tribulation. And then in the last half, the last three and a half years, that peace is broken and Satan's rage is going to be targeted at Israel again. His wrath is aimed at the the covenant people of God. Look, y'all, one of the ways that we know that God is not done with Israel is because Satan, who knows his scripture, Satan isn't done hating them because God's not done loving them. Verse 7, there was war in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon fought in his angels, and prevailed not, neither was their place found any more in heaven, and the great dragon was cast out. That old serpent called the devil and Satan, which deceives the whole world. He was cast out into the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. And I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, Now has come salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ or his Messiah. For the accuser of our brethren is cast down, which accused them before our God day and night. The fact that there is war in heaven, that's not difficult to grasp. The one thing that is hard with verses 7 through 10 is to try to place this in any kind of uh, timeline. Is verse 7 through 10, this, this war in heaven, is it describing the original fall of Satan? Well, well maybe is the description in verse 9 as he was cast out. Or is this the, the defeat of sin and Satan at the cross? Well, maybe since verse 10 associates it with now's come salvation. Or would we read this and say, well, this is all future defeat when, uh, of Satan when Jesus returns and establishes God kingdom, God's kingdom? Well, well, maybe because the, the whole thing sounds like his ultimate defeat. I think the best way to understand this is it's the scope of history. Spiritual warfare has always been a reality even though we don't embrace that truth because we can't see it. The way this is worded, it doesn't sound as if it's all in the past. It can't be all in the past, and yet it can't be all in the future. It is this big arc of God's story. The spiritual warfare is a huge part of that story. In this war, standing on the side of righteousness in verse 7, is Michael and his angels. Michael is referenced in Daniel in the Old Testament and Jude in the New Testament as an archangel, meaning he has some kind of rank over the angels. It has been suggested that of the angels that we know, Michael and Gabriel and Lucifer, who would become Satan, that all of them were archangels over one-third of God's host, and that Lucifer's angels followed him in his rebellion. That may be right. What is clear is that Michael, a name meaning who is like God, is seen here and throughout Scripture as the protector of God's people. Daniel anticipated this war too. Here's what Daniel wrote in Daniel 12, verse 1. 
at that time, Michael shall stand up, the great prince who watches over the, who stands watch over the sons of your people, and there shall be a time of trouble such as was never seen since there was a nation even to that time. And at that time your people shall be delivered, every one who is found written in the book. As John sees this warfare, victory in heaven leads to a struggle on earth in its place. Verse 11, they overcame him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony, and they loved not their lives unto the death. Therefore rejoice, you heavens, and you that dwell in them, but woe to the inhabitants of the earth for the seal uh, for, and, and of the sea, for the devil has come down unto you having great wrath because he knows that he has but a short time. Right? Heaven is to rejoice, but those on earth who inhabit the earth and the sea, they are to see this as a time of great woe because the devil has come to earth now and there's great wrath. Let me ask you this. When there is victory in heaven, and that battle is then turned toward the earth, how can you win victory over a foe that is invisible to you and far more powerful than you? And it's one thing for Michael and his angels to go to battle against Satan and his demons, but but what about you and me? What hope do we have? There's only one right answer. Verse 11 gives it. They overcame him with the blood of the lamb and the word of the testimony and they loved not their lives unto death. The foundation of our victory is the blood of the lamb. That perfect child, Jesus Christ, the son of God, went to the cross and shed his blood as an atonement for our sins. That is the only foundation for victory in this battle. The evidence of that victory is found in the statement by the word of their testimony. In this case, the word is not talking about the word of God as much as it's talking about the words of the people of God. The gospel has become part of them. Their identity is in Jesus. They declare in their words the good news of salvation for sinners, specifically themselves. They've embraced this as their personal testimony. And the attitude of that victory is found in the phrase, they love not their lives unto death, or as the NIV does very well uh, translating this phrase, they did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. The imagery is that with Satan cast down, he, at the end of verse 12, knows he has but only a short time As I said, Satan knows his Bible. When he cannot defeat God, he determines to spend his time killing the people of God. And yet, they overcome by the blood of the Lamb. Their their death is nothing. His death is everything. You can shed our blood, but it's his blood that matters. And since I love him more than my own life, even if I am brought to the door of death, that door just opens into the presence of the Lord Jesus. And if I love him, there's no reason to shrink away from that. Satan hates all people made in the image of God. And there is a a particular hatred in this chapter for that woman, the nation of Israel, which God used to bring the 
promised the Messiah to defeat Satan. His hatred of the covenant people of God is evident in that tribulation period. Verse 13, when the dragon saw he was cast into the earth, he persecuted the woman which brought forth the man-child. And to the woman were given two wings of a great eagle that she may fly into the wilderness into her place where she is nourished for a time and times and half a time from the face of the serpent. And the serpent cast out of his mouth water as a flood after the woman that he might cause her to be carried away by the flood. And the earth helped the woman and the earth opened her mouth and swallowed up the flood which the dragon cast out of his mouth. And the dragon was wroth, was angry with the woman and went to make war with the remnant of her seed which keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. If you remember in verse 6, after giving birth to this male child, the woman flees into the wilderness for safety. And it says God has prepared a place for her. But giving more evidence that this woman is really a nation, we find in verses 13 through 17 that Satan, in verse 17, went to make war with the remnant of her seed. Satan, having failed to prevent the the life of the Messiah, will continually attack these covenant people of God. Verse 13 through 17 actually seems to picture several battles. In verse 14, the woman escapes by being given eagle's wings, escaping into the wilderness for a time, times, and half a time. That's three and a half years. By the way... (laughs) I would not put too much credence into the theory that comes up here that these the eagle's wings, well, that, that's representative of America. Instead, it seems to be an Old, Old Testament reference to God's preserving plan. We see it in Exodus 19, verse 4. God says, you've seen what I did to the Egyptians, how I bore you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. In Isaiah 41, 30, Those who wait on the Lord will renew their strength. They'll mount up with wings like eagles. This first attack is overcome through God's preservation of his people by allowing them to fly or flee to a place of escape. The second attack is graphic in verse 15 as the serpent, it's described, he he casts water out of his mouth like a flood that it would carry the woman away. But in verse 16, the earth opens up and consumes those waters. I don't know how literally we want to take this or just see it as symbolic, but... You know, maybe, maybe one of the great earthquakes described in the tribulation serves to open this crevice to protect Israel from destruction. Even if it happens that way or some other way, it is the divine intervention of God himself who does it. In number 16, the Lord God protected the purity of his people by causing the earth to open up and consume a man named Korah and all those who followed him. Or even of the Egyptians, it was said in Exodus 15 verse 12, God stretched out his right hand and the earth swallowed them up. It's God's divine intervention 
that protects this woman. And yet, there is a plan of God to protect Israel. There's a plan of God to save them. They're saved by embracing the end of verse 17, the testimony of Jesus Christ, or the testimony of Jesus the Messiah, though the nation as a whole rejected him and continues this day to reject him. God's redemptive plan is that they see and embrace this promised child to rule the nations and save his people, that they know this is the Messiah that was promised them. See, all that's how I see Revelation 12. Whether or not that's how you see it, I would encourage you to try to keep it in context of the continuation of John's vision, right? As, as the beginning of the end starts to come in Revelation, the seventh trumpet sounds, John gets this vision of, well, remember, remember what it is. that Here's, here's how it is that we've got here. You know, everything I'm seeing in this vision is part of a much bigger story that's been going on for a very long time. And it's heavily focused on the nation of Israel. Since God's not done loving them and saving them, Satan's not done hating them and making war against them. The simple lesson here is that Satan cannot defeat what God intends to defend. 